Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and I'll be your host today as we take a look at historical gaming, specifically how to take your Dungeons and Dragons campaign and put it in ancient Egypt. For this episode, I'm going to be focusing primarily on AD&D 2nd Edition, mainly because that is the version of Dungeons & Dragons that I've played the most, I have the most experience with, and it's one that I have the most supplemental material for. I'd like to talk a little bit about what inspired me to do this episode. Now, as long-time listeners to my show know, I do have a degree in Religious Studies, and one of the classes I remember that I really enjoyed in college was called Ancient Near East Religions. I really liked the professor for that class. It was a smaller class. I think there was only like eight or nine of us. So we had a very intimate, uh, very friendly atmosphere to the class. And it talked about the ancient religious beliefs of Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Cana. Another thing that inspired me to start this episode and Maybe I'll even branch off and do a few more episodes on this uh, topic of historical gaming is because of an idea I had for an upcoming episode. Some of you might remember my friend James. He's helped me with a few episodes. He's Native American. And I had the idea once to say, well, what would we do if we were going to take a role-playing game campaign and set it in North America before the arrival of Europeans? So... I asked James to help me out with that one since, as I said, he is Native American. So I'm looking forward to doing that episode. But for today, we're going to talk about ancient Egypt. Well, what is historical gaming? Historical gaming, at least the way I'm defining it for the purposes of this episode, is that historical gaming is when you're taking a game and you're putting it in a historical real-world setting that the game was not written for. For example... Most settings for Dungeons & Dragons are somewhat inspired by medieval European settings. And when I say that, I'm referring to the types of weapons and armor and technology that would have been available. So this is where we see your knights in plate mail with charging into battle with lances on their horses, with their broadswords and their shields. But... What if you want to take your campaign outside of that particular time frame? TSR did give us some options. Back in the days of 1st edition, they released the Oriental Adventures book. And this talked about how to run a campaign that used like Japan and China as the, the inspiration as opposed to doing something European. And it would make sense that they would do something like that, mainly because... You know, the monk was one of the original uh, first edition character classes. Second edition gave us lots of source material that we could work with when trying to adapt Dungeons and Dragons into new settings. As far as the editions beyond second edition, I'm not exactly sure how those worked. I think there was an Oriental Adventure supplement re- released for third edition. I'm not sure. And if Wizards didn't release something, I'm sure that there's probably been third-party companies that have released these uh, supplements as well. 
I don't think there's been anything released for 4th edition, and same thing for 5th edition. They've pretty much kept that product line small so far. But who knows, maybe in the future, Wizards of the Coast will start to release uh, the historical gaming reference materials that they did in 2nd edition. Maybe they'll try to update that for 5th edition, so... Uh, We'll have to see, but so far it seems that uh, Wizards is taking the minimalist approach with 5th edition, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, 5th edition is a pretty good, well-rounded system as it is, but so I'm sure that a creative game master and players could find ways to incorporate historical elements into that. But let's go back to 2nd edition. For long-time D&D players, you probably know what books I'm talking about right now. There were three color-coded series of books that were released during the second edition era. First, we had the brown-covered books. These were the character class handbooks. We had the complete fighter's handbook, complete cleric's handbook, complete thieves handbook, and so on. They also introduced a couple of handbooks for classes that were not present in second edition, uh, the complete Barbarian's Handbook. We also had the complete Ninja's Handbook as well. And of course, they had the Race Handbooks. We had the the complete Elves Book, the Book of Dwarves, the Book of Gnomes and Halflings, the Humanoids Handbook, and I know there have been a few others in that series as well. There was also the Blue Cover series, and these were focused more towards Game Masters. Like, there was one, the, I believe there was a castle handbook. There was one, the arms and equipment guide. There was also the book of villains. And the third series were the green covered books. These were the historical reference series books. I have most of them. The ones I have are the Age of Heroes, which is for uh, doing adventures in ancient Greece. There was the Glory of Rome, the Vikings, Charlemagne's Paladins, uh, the Celts, A Mighty Fortress, which is Renaissance, and there was also one for the Crusades, and I think that's it. I'm not sure if there were any other uh, historical supplements, so I own most, but not quite all of them. Here's how these books were organized. First, it would talk about the different character classes and which ones would be appropriate for that setting. Also, it would say there's some classes that maybe the Game Master can allow, but here's some modifications you might need to make. There were also usually new classes or character kits. Sometimes there were new weapon proficiencies, new uh, non-weapon proficiencies, new spells, new magic items. Also, it would have ideas for different types of monsters from the player's handbook that you could allow in this particular historical setting. And, of course, it gave a lot of detailed information about the culture, like their views on the roles of men and women, military, what daily life was like. So they're very interesting, and I highly recommend picking them up if you see one at your local bookstore or on eBay, and if it It sounds like something you might be interested in looking into further. Now, in addition to Oriental Adventures and the Historical Reference series, there was one other attempt at historical gaming. I believe it was in Forgotten Realms. They released a supplement for, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing this, but I think it was called Mazteca, 
And what this setting was supposed to do is give you guidelines for introducing your Dungeons & Dragons campaign into a setting based on Mesoamerica. So like the Aztecs or the Incas or the, the Mayans. So now that we've talked a little bit about some of the historical gaming supplements in 2nd edition, let's take a look at how we can introduce ancient Egypt into your Dungeons & Dragons campaign. And as I said, I'm going to be focusing primarily on 2nd edition, but hopefully there's enough information here where if you're running a campaign in one of the other editions that you can find a way to adapt those these these uh, ideas into your campaign. And of course, these aren't this is not an official supplement, so again, these are just ideas, not set in stone guidelines, of course. One of the things that's really going to shape how your ancient Egypt campaign plays out is going to be the time period in which it takes place. Now, when we're discussing ancient Egypt, we're talking about a, a history that spans about 3,000 or so years. And, of course, a lot of us think of things like the Sphinx and the Pyramids and King Tut, uh, to name a few. Now, there are several major periods in ancient Egyptian history. The major ones are the Old Kingdom period, which went from approximately 2686 to 2181 BC, the Middle Kingdom, which went from 2055 to 1650 BC, and the New Kingdom, which went from 1550 to 1069 BC. So these were periods with the most stability. Uh, there was a little bit of turmoil in between those uh, different periods. Now, if we go with what a lot of people think of when they think ancient Egypt, we're usually going to be looking at around the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom. One of the most iconic images of Egypt is the pyramids, or are the pyramids, rather. And the building of pyramids started to get phased out after the Middle Kingdom. Another time period that you could try running your Egyptian campaign in would be the classical antiquity period. Now, if any of you have the Glory of Rome or the Age of Heroes source books, you can use some of the material from those books in that particular time period. These are the times when the Egyptians were uh, being ruled by the Greeks and then eventually the Romans. Now, as far as which period you want to use, if it was up to me, I would set it around the time of the uh, the Greek occupation of of Egypt, because that's the time when we had the famous Library of Alexandria. The Great Library of Alexandria is a fascinating subject in and of itself. Not going to get too much into it. I remember learning about it when I used to watch the TV series Cosmos with Carl Sagan. I remember he did a segment where he was talking about the uh, this ancient library and how it had all sorts of stacks of different scrolls, as well as areas where they had artwork like sculptures. I think there were also like gardens and maybe even some uh, zoo areas in there where they had some animals in captivity. 
eventually the uh, library of Alexandria was destroyed. Now there actually were several different episodes where the library did experience burnings or you know other disasters. But it's kind of sad because there are some ancient works that we know about their existence only from other works. And supposedly some of these uh, these great works of literature that were lost were only found in the, at the Library of Alexandria. And I remember Sagan was saying that one of the things people, they would do when ships came into Alexandria is the authorities would check to see if they had any interesting books or scrolls or maps uh, on board. And then they would confiscate these these books or scrolls or you know maps just long enough so they could be copied and then they would return the uh, then they would return that to the person who owned it and I did like that idea it was this ancient re- repository of knowledge and ideas and and learning so we're going to talk a bit more about the library of Alexandria uh, later on but first Let's take a look at how we can adapt the D&D game into ancient Egypt. If you decide to set your campaign during the pre-Greek and Roman occupation of Egypt, there is one concept that you should strictly enforce, and that is mat, uh, which is spelled M-A-apostrophe-A-T. It might be pronounced ma'at, um, actually, I think that's how it is pronounced. I seem to recall my uh, professor in ancient Near East religions pronouncing it Ma'at. But I, like I said, I do apologize if there's anyone out there that knows the appropriate pronunciation. I might be uh, slaughtering that pronunciation a bit, so I do apologize. But Ma'at can be thought of as, well, it actually is two things. First, it is the goddess of of justice. Not only that, Ma'at can be thought of as cosmic order. And this was very important in ancient Egyptian society because it was very heavily stratified. So one of the things that I think you probably should enforce is alignment. When you consider the concept of Ma'at and this this uh, focus and emphasis on law and structure and order, any of the lawful alignments would be very much appropriate for the campaign. I think most of the citizens back then probably would have fell along the lawful neutral or lawful good, though I think neutral good could also fit in there as well. Lawful evil could be tolerated as well. The other alignments, even chaotic good, would probably be better suited for NPCs. Now, you might seem kind of strange. Well, A lot of people like playing chaotic good characters, so why would chaotic good be out of place in this this system of ma'at, even though someone who's chaotic good does work for the benefit of others? Well, it is true that chaotic good characters do usually have the interests of others in their their mind when they're doing their adventures or going about their day-to-day lives, Sometimes they do tend to do things that are against the grain or against established tradition. So that's something that would put them in conflict with a lot of the ruling powers of an ancient Egyptian campaign. Now Ma'at, as I mentioned, was not only an ethical principle, but it was also a goddess. And Ma'at 
had this role in the the afterlife, and that was the judging of the dead. It's a very famous motif that's been displayed in many works of Egyptian art. There is someone be having their heart weighed against a feather on a scale, and watching are usually Thoth, the uh, god, the god of knowledge and learning, who has had, I think. I can't remember the name of the bird, but it's kind of like a crane. And uh, also Anubis, the god of the dead. And not only that, there's usually this half crocodile, half hippopotamus monster present as well. Because the Egyptians believed that when you died. One of the reasons they left the heart in the mummy is because the heart needed to be weighed against the feather of Ma'at. And that's what they would do. They would take the person's heart they would put it on the scale, and if it balanced, that means the person had lived a moral life that was guided by the ethical principles of Ma'at. However, if the heart was heavier than Ma'at's feather, and that's that caused the scale to tip one way, that meant that the person would be, they would die a second death. They would be uh, eaten by that crocodile hippopotamus monster and then I believe they were forced to spend sort of a a restless lonely eternity in the underworld which I believe is pronounced duat like I said I do apologize if I'm mispronouncing these however if you were found to be worthy then you were allowed to pass on to a more uh, comfortable afterlife we also see in ancient Egypt a great focus on preparation for the afterlife. We know that a lot of people were buried with different, you know, with grave goods like tools or, or implements. And then, of course, we know how the pyramids that and the royal tombs, they would also have a lot of treasure because it was believed that you would need this stuff in the afterlife. So if you are going to do your ancient Egyptian campaign, one of the things that there's going to be a big focus on is death and the preparation for death. So I think you could really work this into a good conflict. I could see an ancient Egyptian campaign where there's a real focus on undead. And not just necessarily the mummies, because I think mummies can be appropriate for an ancient Egypt setting, even though they really didn't picture them as getting up and walking the earth. But I could see that necromancy being this forbidden black art because, you know, bringing the dead back to life, that's, that would be against Ma'at, against the, you know, the natural cosmic order of things. And we'll talk a bit more about uh, the undead later on. Next, let's take a look at the technology that would be available. We know that ancient Egyptians had quite advanced technology for their time. Not just in regards to engineering, but also math and science. Also, medical knowledge. I mean, they actually had some really good doctors back then, you know, again, considering for the time, of course. Scientists have studied the remains of Egyptian workers who were building the Great Pyramid and the other uh, pyramids, and they found that some of them did suffer serious injuries like you know, fractures or broken bones that were properly healed. 
and you know doctors could tell by the way that the bone grew back together that not only did this person get healed but they actually lived for quite some time after they sustained their injuries so the healing non-weapon proficiency definitely very appropriate for ancient Egypt because they did have these skilled doctors and and I believe there were even uh, ancient Greeks who wrote about how the doctors of Egypt were some of the most skilled doctors in the land. Strangely enough, despite their tremendously advanced knowledge of science, medicine, and engineering, the Egyptians actually had very little to work with in the way of weapons and armor. I think part of it is because, as far as ancient civilizations go, Egypt developed fairly peacefully. They did have some natural boundaries. You know, they had the Mediterranean Sea to the north, the Red Sea to the east. When you started to head south, the terrain, I believe, was a bit more rockier, and the it was harder to travel the river because there were these great waterfalls. And then, of course, you had this huge hostile desert to the west. So since they developed in relative isolation, especially when you compare them to some of the cultures that existed in Mesopotamia and other parts of the ancient Near East, they didn't come into conflict as much as some of their contemporary civilizations may have. Now, as far as armor goes, most Egyptian warriors are believed not to have really worn armor and partly due to the hot climate. So most depictions we have of warriors show them as only using a shield. It was very rare that they would wear helmets. And there are some depictions of what are believed to be pharaohs or generals that were wearing something that appears to be scale mail. Charioteers also made use of leather that covered just part of the torso. So leather armor, scale mail, and shields would all be very appropriate for an ancient Egyptian campaign. And there are writings that have shown that they were known to use bucklers, small shields, as well as the huge tower shields that you might use during a siege. Weapons, fairly limited. Now, the second edition player's handbook does mention the kopesh. And in case you haven't seen one before, it's a shorter sword that has a hook-shaped blade. And the reason that they use that hook-shaped blade is that could be used to pull down an enemy shield and try to disarm them. So that might be an interesting way to work some weapon proficiencies using the hook of the kopesh to try to disarm or distract an opponent. Eventually, they started to use more of what looked like just regular short swords. Any sword larger than that, though, would not have existed at this time. So Kopesh and Short Sword would probably be about the largest swords that you're going to find around this time. Other common weapons, daggers, knives, and spears, because those were, you know, those were just common weapons in the uh, early history, especially the spear, could be used for both war and hunting, but not only that, it was pretty inexpensive to make. There were some pictures that do depict something that appears to be a battle axe, but it isn't the huge two-bladed battle axe that we usually see in a lot of works of fantasy art. Their axes were more akin to a hand axe, and the blade was shaped more like half a circle as opposed to the type of axe you might use in 
you know, a regular D&D campaign. Now, as far as ranged weapons, they used mostly slings, but they also did use bows. Egyptians were also known to use throwing sticks. So these were similar in shape to boomerangs. They were used primarily for distraction, though, as opposed to actually trying to hurt someone. Well, next, let's move on to classes, starting with the warriors. The fighter is the easiest to convert, as with, you know, just about any other historical supplement. And, you know, we look at history, there's always been people around who've specialized in martial arts and armed and unarmed combat. So, really, the only restrictions a basic fighter would have to work with would be what types of armor and weapons are available at that time. Now, to compensate for the lack of armor and the fact that most warriors only would use a shield, I suppose you could introduce some rule where you could specialize in the use of a shield and maybe give you a bit better armor class. So maybe start to, you know, every point you put into shield proficiency gives you an additional plus one to your armor class. So just an idea if you want to look for a way to make your warriors a little harder to hit despite the fact that they're only going to have a shield and probably not much else in the way of armor. If you're using the Complete Fighter's Handbook, there are a few kits there that I think would be appropriate for the Egyptian campaign. First is the Beast Rider. Now, the Beast Rider is implied to be a kit for characters that come from primitive tribes. But when you get right down to it, a Beast Rider is basically a lightly armored warrior who specializes in attacking from the back of a mount. So that's something I could see easily be working into the campaign. The Myrmidon kit is another good example. Although the Myrmidon actually has its roots in Greece, in the Fighter's Handbook, the Myrmidon is a professional soldier. So again, very easy to convert to a second edition campaign. The Gladiator... You could use the Gladiator kit if you are setting your Egyptian campaign later during the Roman occupation. As far as I know, there weren't any gladiatorial type events in uh, Egypt, but we do know that Egypt did trade with other civilizations around the Mediterranean. So as a result, it is quite possible that maybe some gladiators may have found their way to Egypt, either traveling because maybe they were brought there to fight, or maybe they even escaped. The noble warrior and the peasant hero are both examples of characters that could be used for this campaign as well. The noble warrior is a warrior that comes from the wealthy family, and, you know, he's, since he's a nobleman, he usually starts out with more money, and, you know, he's looked upon as being part of the ruling class, the aristocracy, which, as I said before, Egyptian society was heavily stratified where you did have these different social layers. And of course, on the opposite end, there's going to be the peasant hero, which is the hero who stands up for the farmers and the working class, the people who actually would have made up the bulk of ancient Egypt's population. The pirate outlaw is also another good kit. Since we know that the Egyptians did sail the Mediterranean, they did trade with other nations, of course there's going to be people out there that are going to use the sea as a way to steal from other people. So that's why the pirate kit is certainly appropriate. 
And of course, the outlaws, there's going to be people that are going to try to rob you if you're far from the city. Finally, there's the Wilderness Warrior. And the Wilderness Warrior is a kit for a a character who specializes in wilderness survival. So if you want to do a strictly historical campaign without introducing fantasy elements, the Wilderness Warrior kit would probably be the closest that you could allow to a ranger. Speaking of rangers, that's another class that could be used in both a historical campaign or a historical fantasy campaign. Now, when you start to move to historical fantasy campaigns, that's where you are going to start to introduce elements like magic and monsters and the supernatural. Now, in the case of a ranger, I wouldn't recommend the core ranger as it is uh, as written in the player's handbook mainly because it's based primarily on characters like Orion and Robin Hood. I don't really see those fitting in very well with a historical campaign. However, there are a few ranger kits that I could see. So if you do want to allow a ranger in a strictly historical campaign, as a game master, you might want to require that character to have a a kit. One kit that I always liked playing was the Justifier. And the Justifier is a lawful good combat specialized ranger. So I could see that as being a ranger who's like a scout for the military. The Guardian is another example I could see. And the Guardian is a type of ranger that uh, focuses on protecting a single area of land. The Seeker is another option. Seekers are rangers who focus more on spellcasting ability than combat, so they don't get as much to work with in combat, but they get a bit more spells than the average ranger. So I could see a seeker as being a a ranger that lives on the outskirts of civilization, like a hermit. Now since the sea plays a big part in Egyptian commerce, the sea ranger could also be a good example as well. The Sea Ranger is pretty much what you would expect it to be, a ranger that specializes in aquatic environments. There's also the Pathfinder kit, and since a Pathfinder is mostly like a scout or a a map maker, he could work as a military scout. Now, if you decide to set your campaign around the time of the Library of Alexandria, then... Another kit you might want to consider is the Explorer. Now, the Explorer is a type of ranger that craves knowledge. You could kind of see him as an Indiana Jones-type character. Yeah, he's a a scholar and he's, you know, an explorer, but he's also a fighter as well. So that would be a good example if you were using the Library of Alexandria in your campaign because you might choose to have that, you know, this ranger is in the employ of the library and it's his his job to lead expeditions to strange new lands to find knowledge or make maps or do other explorer type things next we come to the paladin historically paladins really don't fit in i mean they're they're modeled after the idea of the knight in shining armor which again wasn't an idea that we really see in ancient egypt I think in a historical fantasy campaign, it could work. You, I would recommend taking out the part about the bonded mount, but if you've got a warrior that fights for law and justice, I could see that as being 
a good idea for a character who worships uh, the goddess Ma'at. Because again, that's Ma'at is universal uh, law and order and a sense of justice, which that's pretty much a Paladin's virtues. Some of the kits are appropriate as well. Uh, one that I think would really fit in is the Medician. And the Medician is a type of Paladin that doesn't get as much to work with in, with weapons, but is a really good healer. And again, as I said, since Egyptians did have access to some pretty advanced medical technology for their time, that would be a good fit. The Ghost Hunter is another example of a Paladin that could work, and as the name would imply, this is a Paladin that focuses on destroying undead. Another possibility is the Inquisitor, and this is a Paladin who hunts down evil magic users. Finally, there's the Devante, and this is a Paladin kit for a Paladin that protects pilgrims and holy places, and they usually see themselves as divine soldiers. Well, moving on from fighters to thieves, the basic thief, pretty easy to convert. Now, I'm not sure exactly what types of locks or security mechanisms that they would have had, because if you wanted to get really historically accurate, let's be honest, you're not really going to find a lot of traps in the uh, in ancient Egypt. I don't think they had anything like you know poison needles or you know guillotines that would swing out of the sky. No, they didn't have anything like that. But people had to have some way to secure the doors. So there are going to be people who are going to focus on how to break and enter into a building. We also know that grave robbing was a, an occurrence in the time of ancient Egypt, where you know there were people that would go into the, the pyramids or these royal tombs to steal as much treasure as they could. Now, I'm sure that these pyramids and these tombs didn't have actual traps. But of course, in a fantasy setting, we can certainly get creative with the types of traps that we would put in an ancient Egyptian tomb. The bandit and the thug kits would also work pretty well. You know, again, these are more like your criminal scum where, you know, the bandit is a thief that focuses on robbing people on the highways when they're far from town, whereas the thug is more or less the urban equivalent where he hangs around in the same city and that's where he focuses on beating people up and taking their money. The buccaneer and the smuggler are also good choices as well because, you know, as we mentioned before, they did do a lot of maritime trading. So, of course, you're going to have those buccaneers, those pirates who are going to try to rob ships. And since there was a lot of trade, there's probably going to be some illegal goods. And that's where the smuggler could, could work. The scout is another good thief kit, because, again, this could be a thief who's in the service of the military, where he uses his abilities to move stealthily to spy on enemy troops. Finally, there's the Assassin Kit. And the Assassin could be a follower of Set in later times. And here's why I say that. Now, in the second edition Legends and Lore and the first edition book, and I'm sure that pretty much any book that covers ancient Egyptian gods and how they would work in Dungeons and Dragons, pictures Set as being evil. However, that wasn't always necessarily the case in ancient Egypt. Set 
was known for killing his brother Osiris and trying to take over the land of Egypt from him. However, Set also had the role of the guardian. He was the one who guarded the ship of Ra from a sea monster. Well, not maybe it wasn't a sea monster, but I know there's the depictions of Set that show him on the the boat fighting off a monster. So he did have a somewhat of a protective function as well as being this evil god. So how did Set become this protector god who, well, let's be honest, he was mischievous into this evil god. Well, it's believed that later on in Egypt's history, when they were being attacked by a foreign nation, I I think the name is Krykos is the name of the people. I might be wrong on that, but when they were taking over Egypt, they identified one of their deities with Set. So Set became associated with these these foreign oppressors. So Set was actually seen as the god of foreigners. And that's probably where we started to see this demonization where Set went from being this this, uh, mischievous uh, usurper warrior god into this dark evil god. So if that's how you wish to portray Set in your Egyptian campaign, I could see assassins being the members of a cult of Set that well, their goal is pretty much to assassinate people. Now, we also know the Egyptians did have some musical instruments, harps, there were flute, different types of flutes and woodwind instruments, as well as drums and tambourines. So I think if you were going to run a historical campaign, you could allow a character to be a bard and just take away the magic use and have him focus more on his skills of negotiation and raising the morale of his his teammates, his, his party. And of course, if you do decide to do historical fantasy, a bard with magic could certainly work as well. There aren't as many bard kits that I think would work. One of them that could work is the charlatan, essentially a con man. Every age, every time, you're going to find people who are going to try to swindle others out of their money. The Herald is another good choice. Uh, The Herald is, well, he makes announcements for the royalty, but he's also an information gatherer. So I could see that working as well. Then finally, there's the Lore Master and the Riddle Master. Since those two bard kits focus a lot on solving riddles and obtaining knowledge, that would work really well with the with the ancient Egypt, where there was this emphasis on learning and education. Well, for the upper class anyway, but that's beside the point. Well, next we get to the spellcasting classes. Now, in the other historical supplements, they do give the game master the option to allow wizards, but they recommend that you're probably going to want to have a wizard specialist, and usually the spell lists are very restricted. Because, you know, I mean, it's easy to picture a wizard in ancient Greece or ancient Rome or or ancient Egypt, any of those places, casting spells like charm person or sleep, uh, you know, things like that. But kind of hard to picture them casting things like fireball and meteor swarm and lightning bolt. So it's recommended that if you are going to allow 
the uh, wizards and spellcasters in an ancient campaign, you're probably going to want to have them focus on more subtle magical effects as opposed to the fireballs, lightning bolts, and you know, big bang spells that are designed to uh, damage a large number of opponents. So that's another one thing you might want to consider, maybe only allowing specialist mages, where I think the enchanter the, and the diviner would both be good choices for specialist wizards. Illusionists I could see working as well, and since in an ancient Egyptian campaign is going to be so focused on you know life and death, I think the necromancer would be a good specialist as well. Now, as far as wizard kits, one of them from the Complete Wizards Handbook that I could see working really well is the Academian. So this is a wizard that is not only just a spellcaster, but also a scholar as well. So that type of character could work really well if you're setting your campaign around the time when the Library of Alexandria would be in existence. I could see a Mac Academian working for that library. The Mystic, now this is a type of wizard kit where the Mystic is primarily a hermit type character, so that could work as well. You might remember when I talked about Fighter, we had the Noble Warrior and the Peasant uh, Hero. There are wizardly equivalents. The Patrician, Patrician, I think that's how it's pronounced, is a wizard from a wealthy family. And then you have the peasant wizard. Again, their primary responsibilities are who they want to protect, where the one of them from the wealthy family, he's going to have the interest of the nobles in mind, whereas the peasant wizard is going to use his magic to defend the lower classes. Another wizard kit that I think would work is the witch. Now, a lot of parts of the ancient world, there was a belief in witchcraft. And this was people who would use magic to uh, enchant and control others or raise the dead. This is designed to emulate the classic witch who has made a deal with some extra planar power. Also, another option for a historical campaign is in the Mighty Fortress sourcebook. They introduced a character kit in there called the Scholar Mage. The Scholar Mage is a wizard who attempted to use external implements to cast his spells. You know, his, his magic was very ritualized as opposed to a standard D&D wizard who's just going to pull some magic components out of his pockets and cast a fireball. Now, this could be allowed in a historical setting because one of the differences they have there, and they mention this, that first, if you're going to allow a Scholar Wizard, a Scholar Mage, there are some rules that should strictly be enforced. First, the chance to fail at learning a spell. So if you fail to learn a spell, then you know you can't learn it ever again. Also, they recommend that when you're casting higher level spells, that the only way you can do it is if you have access to a scroll or a spell book. Also, and this is a big one, a lot of us are aware of material components, most game masters I know use it as an optional rule. But for a scholar wizard, magical components become a required rule. So that's really going to set a limit on these historical campaign wizards. Because if that spell description says that the wizard needs to have a diamond worth 500 gold pieces, 
you know, 30 candles made from animal fat and a gold coin that belonged to some long dead king, then guess what? He has to have that stuff to cast his spell. They also introduced the rule of increasing the casting time by one step. So for example, a spell that would be cast in one round instead would be cast in a turn. Or a spell that would normally take 10 minutes to cast would actually take 10 hours to cast. So this is going to make it where, yeah, you can still use magic, but it's not always going to be practical. I mean, if, if it takes you 10 minutes to cast a fireball, well, chances are by the time that fireball spell is ready, the battle's probably already over. Well, speaking of necromancers, if you have access to the necromancers handbook, I think the all of the character kits in there could be appropriate for an ancient Egyptian campaign. First, there's the archetypical necromancer. These are best suited as NPCs since they are evil and they get things called dark gifts, which allow them to do things like animate the dead by touch or radiate an aura of fear. However, before you all decide to go and say, I want to play our typical necromancer, they also suffer from things like physical deformities and insanity, and sometimes they're subject to curses, like they have to drink blood once per day, or they might take damage from holy water. Now, the next type of necromancer kit, I think this is, again, very appropriate, and that's the anatomist. Essentially, an anatomist necromancer is a surgeon. They learn a lot about the workings of the human body from dissecting corpses. One of their benefits is they get better than average results with the healing non-weapon proficiency. And as I mentioned before, since ancient Egypt did have access to some pretty uh, advanced medical techniques, that type of a character fits in really well. The Death Slayer is a necromancer who seeks to destroy undead. And as I've been encouraging... A campaign set in ancient Egypt should have a strong presence of undead monsters, so a Death Slayer will definitely fit in. The Philosopher Necromancer is similar to the Mystic, a hermit who seeks forbidden lore and lives in the wilderness. So, again, another good choice that I could see working. Finally, there's the Undead Master. He's going to work best as an NPC because he specializes in creating undead. Well, finally, we move on to the priest classes. First, I would not recommend the Druid because that's pretty much inspired by uh, Celtic mythology and the Celtic priests, so not really very appropriate to an ancient Egypt campaign. The cleric, though, is appropriate because we do know there was a hierarchy of priests and there was this organized priesthood in ancient Egypt. Some of the cleric kits that I think would work really well would be the nobleman priest and the peasant priest for the same reason that those types of characters work with the you know the fighters and the the the, the wizards the pacifist priest I could see that working as well and the pacifist priest is essentially a type of priest that well he can't wear armor and has very limited weapon usages and he tries to focus on solving problems with his personality as opposed to, you know, actually hurting anyone. The prophet priest is another example. And again, these are priests who will sometimes gain visions and predictions of the future. 
And finally, there's the scholar priest. So if you were to set your campaign in, again, around the time of the Library of Alexandria, it's easy to see a scholarly priest being in the employ of the library. Well, let's talk about some of the monsters that you could see there. Now, of course, mummies are appropriate, though historically they didn't picture mummies as being creatures that would get up and walk around. But again, remember, the Egyptians did focus a lot on afterlife and protecting the dead because they believed that if the dead were mistreated or if their bodies were handled disrespectfully, it might cause a vengeful spirit to inhabit that body and cause the dead to walk after they've they've died. So in addition to mummies, I could see a lot of your other types of undead, skeletons, zombies, ghouls, ghasts, uh, ghosts. So those could all fit in really well. Sphinxes were also well known in Egypt, so you could use those types of monsters. There are some depictions that appear to be griffins, but they didn't always have wings. The hippocampus is another type of creature from Egyptian mythology, which usually uh, lived in the ocean and water. And then there's a couple other types of monsters that I was looking at, which I'm not sure how you could adapt them to D&D, but there could be ways. One type of creature was called the serpapards, and these are creatures that are feline in appearance, but they've got a long snake-like neck. So I suppose one way you could introduce that creature is give it the statistics similar to a catablepus. However, probably not having the death gaze that the catablepus does. Finally, another type of depiction is the set animal. Again, who appears to be uh, related to the god set. Now this animal... It's hard to say if it's based on a real-world animal. They look kind of like a dog, but they have a forked tail, and they seem sometimes are depicted with features of other types of animals as well, such as horns similar to a giraffe. So I could see using the set animal, maybe have like hellhounds. Those would be a good example of the set animal, especially if you're going to choose to have Set in your campaign as being this dark, evil deity of violence and chaos. So I hope that this has given you some ideas on how you might want to take your Dungeons & Dragons campaign and put it in a non-European setting. And even if you have no plans on doing that at all, I hope you did find the uh, topics discussed in this episode interesting. So with that said, I'd like to thank you for listening and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.